Amen, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome again. So glad to see each and every one of you here. You know, it's good. It's good to be back in the States. Some of you are aware of this, that Brandon and I went to Oakville, Canada, eh? Oakville, Canada, where we attended the annual GCC conference. GCC stands for the Great Commission Collective, and that's the network of churches that we harvest are a part of. So let me just say, like, right up front, it was a great time. It was a great time of worship. It was a great time with the main sessions, and there were, there were workshops. It was a great time to connect with other pastors, other worship leaders, and it was also great to see what God is doing in other parts of the world. We had representatives there from other nations who had come to be a part of this conference, and that was an amazing thing to see because the gospel's going out. I know when we open the newspaper or the app or whatever and we see the horrible things that happened, the horrible thing that happened this past week with the shooting in Maine and the horrible things that are going on in Israel, the horrible things that are going on in the world, Friends, the gospel is going out. And it's so good to see that. And it was so good for Brandon and I to be able to witness that and remember that, yes, we are a church here in Decatur, Illinois. But my friends, we are a part of something so much bigger. Lives are being changed through church plants. We've seen, we saw many uh, churches that had recently been planted, representatives there of their pastors and elders. We saw pastors and upcoming elders of churches to be planted recently, and it was just exciting to see all that. The Great Commission is happening. Well, friends, I want to start off this morning a little bit different than, actually, I've never started this way off in a sermon before. I have a not-so-crisp $100 bill. Who wants it? <laughs> I wasn't surprised. Somebody right here. Well, interestingly enough, I could give you this $100 bill, and I actually wouldn't hesitate to do that. At the top, it says, for motion picture use only. This is a prop. Interestingly enough, this was left on the check-in counter for Harvest Kids downstairs, and my wife handed it to me this morning. Why, I don't know, except to say that God knew I was going to open this service talking about counterfeit money. <laughs> Go figure. There's a man named Albert Talton who was sent to prison in May of 2009 for the crime of creating counterfeit money. And it is estimated that he created $7 million of false currency using supplies, including an inkjet printer that he purchased from Staples. He's known as the inkjet counterfeiter. Counterfeit currency is circulating all the time. I read a stat this week that for every one, or for every one bill of counterfeit, there's 10,000 bills of currency. Now, you might think about that. That doesn't seem like a lot at first, but if you do the math, that adds up to about $70 million in counterfeit notes that are circulating at any given time. I read a document this week that talked about how to spot counterfeit bills, and generally you can tell a bill is counterfeit by its texture, by its flatness, by the color fibers that they embed within real money, by the serial numbers on the bill, and by the security features that they've embedded in the currency. And that makes for an interesting study, but what in that world does that have to do with our passage today? If you think that counterfeit currency is a problem, and sure enough it is, 
That's nothing to the counterfeit fruit that goes on in today's Christian circles. This morning, we're going to look at counterfeit fruit. I'm going to explain what that is in a minute. And we're going to look at the difference between counterfeit fruit and genuine fruit. We're continuing our study through Mark. And we've just seen, last week we saw Jesus coming to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. We're in this new section called Jesus' Jerusalem Ministry. It's the final week of his life. By the way, we're covering the final week of Jesus' life. For him, it took one week. For us, it's going to take about five months, but that's okay. The final week of his life. And every day, what he's doing is this. He goes to Jerusalem. He ministers, particularly at the temple, and then he returns to Bethany, which is where he's staying. And that's the pattern that he follows up until the night that he's betrayed. Last week, like I said, we observed Jesus. He came into Jerusalem. He looked around at everything, his new stage in ministry, and then he went back to Bethany. This week, we're going to look at the first thing that he does there. So join me, if you will. I'm going back to Mark 11, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. It says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Is that an interesting story? We're looking at the difference between counterfeit fruit and genuine fruit, and the first thing I want to point out to you is this. Counterfeit fruit is all about appearances. Counterfeit fruit is all about appearances. Verse 12 tells us it's the next day. This is the day after he had ridden into Jerusalem. And he and his disciples, they spent the night at Bethany. They're traveling to Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. Now, that's an easy detail to kind of skip over, But that's important because it reminds us of his humanity. Yes, Jesus is divine. Yes, he's God. We've been talking about that all through our series, but he's also human. You know, way back months ago when we looked at Mark chapter 4, we saw that Jesus and his disciples were in a boat. They were caught in a storm. And what was Jesus doing? Sleeping. He was sleeping because he was tired. Because he was human. He got tired. He got hungry. And we're reminded of that here. He's hungry, and he goes and he looks for something to eat on this fig tree. And he sees this in the distance, and it's in leaf. Now, fig trees in Palestine, they would be in leaf about March, April, so around springtime. However, they wouldn't have figs till about June. All of this is interesting because it coincides with where we celebrate Easter. We celebrate Easter, Good Friday Easter, in the spring, so all of this lines up. But... It's not June. There's no figs, but Jesus goes looking for figs anyway. Question. Why would the almighty creator who created the fig tree, who was all-knowing, who knew what season it was, who knew that there would be no figs on the tree, go looking for figs anyway? Because it's not about figs. It's not about finding food. It's about something else. Jesus finds no figs, so he does what any of us would do in this situation. He curses the tree. I mean, is that your response? You go to the grocery store for pickled onions? Because all of you go get pickled onions. I know you do. And when they don't have them, what do you do? You curse the store. 
walk away in a huff. No, that's not what we do. I mean, we're disappointed for sure, but we don't curse the store, but that's what Jesus did. And by the way, this is the only miraculous work of Jesus recorded in any of the gospels that causes destruction, not restoration. What's going on here? This is not some action performed out of an outraged Jesus because he couldn't get the bite to eat. It's not about that. It's about something else. Remember that Jesus is the master teacher who can take any situation and turn it into a teaching moment. It's about what the tree represents. The lack of physical fruit on the fig tree represents the lack of genuine spiritual fruit in Israel. It looked good from a distance. It had the promise of fruit. It had the leaves. It had all the appearance of something healthy that was giving fruit. However, Jesus came to examine it and he found no fruit. It represents the fruitlessness of Israel. And if you wonder, well, how did he come to that conclusion? We follow the pattern. I'm not going to get there yet, but following the pattern takes us to what Jesus does next. But first of all, I'm going to say this. The truth is that Israel at this time was fruitless, and so are a lot of Christians today. And may I say, so are a lot of people that appear to be Christians. They look great on the outside. Crossed all their T's, dotted all their I's, seem humble, seem obedient, perhaps even know their Bible, but there is no genuine fruit. Before I go any further, let's define fruit. What am I even talking about? Because you've probably figured out by now I'm not talking about figs or apples or bananas or watermelon. No. When I say fruit in this passage, I'm talking about the works that result from salvation. The works that result from salvation. Notice I didn't know the works that result in salvation. Good works do not result in salvation, but they do result from salvation. Somebody say, what are you talking about? Good. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a familiar passage says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Who knows this verse? Who memorized it way back in Awana? All right, you know this verse. A lot of you have it memorized. This is a go-to verse for explaining that you cannot earn your salvation. Salvation is by God's grace. That's God's grace extended to us through Jesus Christ. It's, it's accepted through faith. That's our faith in Jesus Christ, specifically in the work that he did when he died on the cross and rose again. No work, when I say that, I mean no good thing that you can do will earn you salvation. If you think that one day you will stand before God and he will be impressed with your life, I have to warn you, that's not gonna happen. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us that it's not our works, it's not the good that we do that saves us, it's the grace of God that saves through the faith that we place in Jesus Christ. You may think, well, how can I get that? Here's the good news. God's grace is extended to you right now. He wants you to come to him. It's like he has a ticket for you to hop on board to his offer of salvation. And you just gotta reach out and take it. And that's what faith is, reaching out and taking the ticket. ticket. Simply put, trust in Jesus. 
believe that he came as a sinless man, that he died on the cross to take the penalty that was meant for you, meant for me, and he rose again from the dead. Believe that and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, finish it for me, saved. Now, if you've never heard that message and you wanna know more about this, catch me after church, hunt me down, grab me, tackle me if you have to. I wanna talk to you. Fruit, good works, do not result in salvation, but they do result from salvation. In fact, the very next verse in Ephesians, verse 10 of chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once saved, the natural outflow is good works. Why? Because we know how to love now that we have seen his love. We know now how to show grace because he showed us grace. We know now how to be patient because he's been patient with us. Those things and many, 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 many more are the good works that we as Christians display. Again, not to save us, but because we've been saved. We are a new creation now. And if you are not displaying that kind of fruit, then I have to say there's something wrong. Are you a fruitless fig tree? You look good from afar. You've got the steps down. You've got the looks down, but up close, is there fruit? Up close, are you a counterfeit? Up close, is it just all about appearances? And by the way, fruitless fig trees, I would argue, are not legitimate Christians. Christians are gonna produce fruit. It might be weak fruit, it might be poor fruit, it might be little fruit, but it's gonna be fruit. Non-Christians are not gonna have any fruit. Now, what does this look like practically every day? I've talked about this before, but this bears repeating. I knew a guy in college many years ago. I shouldn't have confessed that many years ago. Just a few years ago. I knew a guy in college who had all the appearance of a Christian on fire. I mean, he knew his Bible. He had this infectious personality. He talked about Jesus, and he wanted to start a Bible study. Great. He started this Bible study, and in that Bible study, it came out that he had a secret agenda. He wanted to take down the school. Seriously, he was after the professors. He wanted, he actually would pray against the professors. And these were good, honest, hardworking, Bible-believing professors, and he wanted to bring them down. Why? Because he had an agenda. It wasn't about the gospel to him. It was about his own thing. There was no genuine fruit in his life. Now, that's an extreme. I would say the average fruitless person could honestly just be someone who seems nice. They seem to know their Bible. They come to church regularly. Perhaps they even go to small group. But here's the thing. There's no change. There's no change. There's no growth. There's no increase of love. Nothing. No fruit. So let me ask, is that you? Are you professing to be a believer, but there's no fruit? Could it be that you don't have a true faith in Jesus? And like I said, if you think that's you, come and talk to me. You might be thinking, well, how would I know? How, how, could, I, how could I know if there's no fruit? 2 Corinthians 13.5 reads like this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 
It tells us quite plainly, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Well, what does that look like? It looks like this. Going back over your life and asking others to help you do the same, looking at your life and looking for fruit, looking for ways that you have grown. Do you still struggle the same way you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Is there any growth? Do you have any increase in love, any increase in joy, any increase in peace and patience and so on? That's the test. Do you pass? Have you seen the Holy Spirit mold you? Can you point back and say, yes, that was a growth moment. That was a growth moment. That was a growth moment. Or do you look back and think, I don't see it. Now, if you do pass the test, awesome. Praise God. If you can point back, yes, I know. Pastor Ryan, I know I have grown in the Lord. I've seen it. Awesome. Praise God. So then I'd ask you this question. How's the current fruit in your life? Are you producing good, ripe, delicious fruit, or is it kind of grody? It's there, but it could be better. Why is that? Could it be that you've drifted into thinking more about the appearance of fruit rather than genuine fruit? Put another way, are your motives more about keeping up with appearances rather than living for the Lord? So let me say, let me just challenge you. This week, do a gut check. Take a look at your motives. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas where you've drifted into pleasing man rather than pleasing God, and then repent of that and ask him for his strength to continue to grow. Counterfeit fruit is all about appearances, but there's another point, point number two. Counterfeit fruit is nothing but wax, Nothing but wax. Remember when artificial fruit was made of wax? Anybody remember that? Anybody have that grandmother with a bowl of wax fruit on the table? You know what I'm talking about. Now, for, for those of you who might not be old enough, I'm not talking about fruit waxing, okay? That is a whole different ball of wax. I'm talking about artificial fruit that used to be made out of wax and it was for decoration. And again, it looked great, but don't take a bite out of it. Join me in verse 15. I'll explain what I'm talking about. When they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus gets back to the temple. Now all that's happening in verses 15 through 19, all that's happening there is happening in where we would call the court of the Gentiles. Let me take a minute and follow me. This is important. The temple had several courts moving inward like this. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, that's where you had to go and you couldn't go any further. The next court in was the court of the women. If you were a woman, you could go beyond the Gentiles, but you couldn't go any further than that. Now, the next court was the court of Israel or the court for Jewish men. So if you were a Jew, you were a man, you could go to that court. But then there was one final court, the court of the priests. And it all went inward like this to the Holy of Holies. The temple was segregated 
by both gender and ethnicity, and that's important. We're going to unfold why in a minute. So the court of the Gentiles, that outer court, that's where the money changing was going on. That's where the people were selling animals to be sacrificed. And this was necessary. This was a necessary service because pilgrims would be traveling from all over the world to Jerusalem for the Passover. They'd be coming from other countries, so they'd need to exchange their currency and buy sacrificial animals. Now, you might think, well, why wouldn't they just bring their own animal? They could do that. But if you consider the mode of travel back then, if you consider the distance, and if you consider that the animal had to be without blemish, so imagine if they travel all that way and then something happens to the animal and then all of a sudden they they can't use it as a sacrifice. It had to be without blemish by the Levitical law. So it was actually much easier, much more convenient to come buy your animal and use it. And by the way, that was not forbidden in the law. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it even speaks to people who can't afford to buy sheep and have to purchase doves instead. So this practice was not against the law. But this raises a question. Why does Jesus do this? We haven't seen Jesus act like this throughout our study in Mark. It's almost like he goes crazy and he drives people out. He drives those who are selling and those who are buying. He drives out those who are exchanging money. And this is... This is severe. The Greek term there for for driving out implies force. It's not, you know, hey, could you mind not doing that? Go away, please. It's get out. That's the tone that Jesus is using. He's like, get out. He's overturning tables and chairs. I mean, if you picture it in your head from all appearances, it's almost like Jesus has gotten out of control. And then, verse 17 tells us something interesting. It says, it tells us that he was, what? What did your Bible say? He was teaching. He's going crazy and he's teaching the people. What's he teaching them? Mark gives us two Old Testament passages that Jesus quotes. The first one is from Isaiah 56, 7. It reads like this. These I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So that's one thing he's teaching. But there's another thing. This comes from Jeremiah 7.11. It says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? What's going on here? Perhaps like myself, you were brought up to think that Jesus was cleansing the temple. Perhaps you were brought up to think that Jesus is angry with the money exchangers and he's angry with these people who are selling animals and he's driving them out. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is angry. He's angry over people in this day because the temple had degenerated into segregation. The temple had become a symbol of ethnic exclusion, not a prayer, a place of prayer for all people. This temple, by the way, I explained this last week, this is Herod's temple. It wasn't built the same way as Solomon's temple. It wasn't designed the same way as the tabernacle. When God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, there were no court of Gentiles and women and court. It wasn't like that. Yes, it did go inward to the Holy of Holies, but it was the priests and then the people. 
And what has happened is that the temple has been created in a way that creates segregation. And Jesus is angry about that. Furthermore, he's also angry because the temple has become a place of refuge for people to come and practice and people to come and practice rituals of worship, but then live their lives however they want. They turn the temple into what Jesus calls a den of robbers. Now, a den, that's where the place the thieves go after they commit crimes. It's their hideout, it's their safe house. So Jesus, by using this term den of robbers, he's not suggesting those who sold the animals and those who are exchanging money. He's saying, you're using the temple as a place you think you can run to for forgiveness and worship after acting like thieves. They were treating the temple as a religious talisman that they could come and keep connected to God no matter how they lived on the outside. I mentioned Jeremiah chapter seven. In fact, that whole section where this phrase den of robbers comes from, it outlines the idea that Israel before the exile was doing the same thing. They were treating the temple like a place that they could come and still have communion with God after they did horrible sins away. In fact, I'll just read you a short short section. Jeremiah seven, nine, and 10 reads, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Jesus is angry because the people were using God's temple and his laws as outward religious rituals to make them okay with God, even though their lives and hearts were far from him. It was wax fruit. It was fake. It was coming to God in worship, but not allowing God to change them. It was a system that said, you can live how you want, just do A, B, and C when you get to the temple and you'll be fine. One commentator on Mark, his name is David E. Garland, he writes this. The leaders of the people think that they can rob widows' houses and then perform the prescribed sacrifices according to the prescribed patterns at the prescribed times in the prescribed purity in the prescribed sacred space and then be safe and secure from all alarms. That's why Jesus is accusing the Jews of making his temple a den of robbers. The temple had become a place of segregation and fruitless rituals. Wax fruit. Now, how did the people respond? Well, the chief priests and the scribes, they're upset. They want to kill him. Why? Because Jesus is usurping their power. They're the ones who had power over the temple. And any challenge to the temple operations was a challenge to the honor of the priests. They knew what he was saying, and it interfered with their system and thus their economic and social interests, and they didn't like that. And furthermore, the text tells us that they feared Jesus. Did you see that in the text? They feared Jesus but not by way of reverence. Isn't it interesting that that same example, that's that same explanation, fearing God, fearing the Lord, is the way we're supposed to respond, but it's a fear of awe and humble submission to him. Did they do that? No, they feared him because he threatened their influence. This is a day for Jesus of ministry kicking people out of the temple. Now, I wouldn't do that. That's not what I would call ministry, just kicking people out of the church, but that's what Jesus is doing. Why? Because just like the fig tree, 
They might look great on the outside, but you get up close and there's no fruit. It's wax fruit. It's fake. They were all doing the right things, but there was no fruit because it was nothing but legalism. Nothing but wax. Now, if you're not familiar with the term legalistic, that means to follow the law, the Bible, to follow the law in order to make God happy. That's legalism. It's trying to do all the right things with the motive to make yourself acceptable or pleasing to God. I go to church to make God happy. I help the poor to make God happy. I listen to Christian music to make God happy. And by the way, this applies in the other direction. I never watch those kind of movies because that would make God upset with me. I never smoke, oh, heaven forbid, because that would make God unhappy. And I never listen to rock and roll. God would be so upset with me. Friends, don't settle for wax fruit. Don't strive to do good things with the motive of trying to please God. Don't try to make God happy with you by doing good. Don't bow to legalistic tendencies because let me tell you, we all have them. Christians even have them. We have this innate desire to earn our salvation even after we're saved. But don't bow to the legalistic tendencies that exist within you. Galatians 5.1 says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that's what legalism is. That's what wax fruit is. It's slavery. And by the way, this is the point of the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Do you remember that parable? The Pharisee and the tax collector both go into the temple to pray. Prayer is a good thing. But the Pharisee went to boast about himself and all that he'd done from the Lord. Look at me, God. Look at what I do. Look at how I help people. Look at the sin that I avoid. Look at me, God. That's what wax fruit is doing. Wax fruit is saying, look at me, God. Look at me, God. Look at me, God. I want your attention. I'm trying to do everything to make you happy. That's wax fruit. In contrast, the tax collector in the parable, he simply weeps and repents over his sin. And Jesus says, that man goes home forgiven. Now, at this point, you might be saying to yourself, let's try that again. At this point, you might be saying to yourself, self, self good, all right. How do I know the difference between wax fruit and real fruit? How do I know the difference between wax fruit and real fruit? Good, all right. Great question. Let's finish up our passage. Go to verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Last point. Remember, we're looking at the difference between counterfeit fruit and genuine fruit. Here's the difference. Genuine fruit is faith-filled fruit. Genuine fruit is faith-filled fruit. After Jesus goes WWE on the people... 
they head back to Bethany for the night. And the next day, they see that the fig tree that he cursed 24 hours earlier has withered. That tells us this was not some strange, coincidental, natural phenomenon. I know that diseases can work fast even in trees, but they don't wither to the roots overnight. Peter sees this and he points out to Jesus and Jesus says, have faith in God. Does that seem strange? Jesus, look at the fig tree. Uh Uh-huh, have faith in God. What? What are you saying? How is this connected to the fig tree? Quite simply this. You might want to jot this down somewhere in your notes. Quite simply this. No faith, no fruit. No faith, no fruit. The reason Israel had an appearance of fruit, the reason they had wax fruit, which really isn't any fruit, is because they did not have faith in God. They did not have faith in Yahweh. The basis, the foundation of producing real fruit stems from genuine faith in God. Anything less is wax. Now, before I go any further, let's unpack the text a little bit because Jesus tells Peter, have faith in God, and then he starts talking about the mountains. He starts saying, you know, you could do a massive landscaping project if you want to, tossing mountains into the sea. Why does he start talking that way? What is Jesus saying? What he's saying here is that faith in God is what it takes to accomplish what is humanly impossible. It is humanly impossible. That is, with man's efforts, it is impossible to produce any genuine fruits. Anytime that we strive in our own strength to produce what is pleasing to the Lord, it only ends up as an appearance of fruit. It's not real fruit. It's wax. It never results in the real thing. The only thing that can produce real, God-honoring, life-changing fruit is faith in God. Why? Because it takes the power of God. It takes the work of God. It's God, not man, who does the work of moving mountains that is changing our lives. And note, and I want to say this because this is a popular idea in our day and age, note that it's not faith that's the power, okay? People will tell you that, that faith is the power. It's not faith that's the power. It's God who has the power. Our faith is merely the action that we take to receive the power the power that God readily offers. John MacArthur writes this, faith in itself has no power, it merely accesses God's power. The key to real life change, to seeing people come to Christ, to watching the gospel go forth, to overcoming sin, to experiencing the impossible is faith in an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Now we ask the question, how do I have this kind of faith? And Jesus gets very practical in verse 24, so I'm going to read it again. Jesus says in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The practical pathway to exercising genuine faith is prayer. It's prayer. Is that too simple for you? All we have to do is pray? Yes. Real prayer 
Prayer that is not motivated to be showy, prayer that is not trying to manipulate God, but real, genuine prayer is an exercise of our faith. It's communion with God. It's coming to him humbly saying, I can't do it, I need you. Well, well, what is genuine faith-filled prayer? It's three things. Three things. I would encourage you to jot these down somewhere. First, it's prayer that aligns with God's will. Genuine faith-filled prayer is prayer that aligns with God's will. James chapter 4, 2 through 3, read like this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Asking God for things with selfish motives is not aligning our desire with his. He wants to work in you. He wants to mold you. He wants to shape your character. That's the work of God, by the way. That's the will of God for you is that he wants to mold you and shape you. He wants the gospel to do its work in and through you. He wants you to go do kingdom work for his church. And praying those kinds of prayers are the prayers we will see answered in our lives because they align with what God wants to do. Don't get me wrong, God knows our physical needs and we should pray for physical needs, absolutely. But the big thing that God wants to do, he wants to change you. He wants to change you. So pray prayers that align with God's will. Secondly, what is faith-filled prayer? Faith-filled prayer is prayer that prays and believes God answers. Jesus says it quite simply. Pray and believe you receive it. If you pray a prayer that aligns with God's will for you and you believe that he answers it, Jesus says it'll be yours. Let me give you an example. If you're struggling with patience and you decide, you know what? I see this in my life. I know God wants me to be more patient. I'm gonna pray about this. That's a genuine prayer. That's asking God to grow your patience and guess what? He's gonna do that. Now, he'll probably do that by piling all kinds of opportunities on you to exercise patience. He'll probably bring more frustrating people into your life and more frustrating circumstances into your life to force you to rely on him. That's typically the way prayers for patience go. You'll hate it. (laughs) But that's how he's answering your prayer. Thirdly, what is faith-filled prayer? Faith-filled prayer is prayer that forgives. It forgives. We can't have genuine fellowship with God if we are holding grudges against others. Don't do it. Don't hold grudges. You'll be miserable. But they frustrate me, you say. But they wronged me. Maybe. Maybe. But don't hold grudges against your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for that matter, don't hold grudges against unbelievers because they can't even help their behavior. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Holding a grudge, I know it makes us feel like we have power over someone, but that's a lie. We don't have any power over them. We're just holding our own heart captive. Release your grudges and you will sense new freedom and peace. Why? Because when we do that, when we forgive others, we open our hearts to the forgiveness of God. Now, it's not saying here that God does not forgive your sin and you're condemned. That's not what it's saying here, okay? It's not saying God withholds. Once you come to Jesus Christ, once saved, always saved, sins past, present, future, done. 
But what Jesus is saying here is by holding grudges, by refusing to forgive, we block our relational connection with God. We don't sense that lightness and that peace and that love in our soul because we're not obeying him. We're holding on to unforgiveness. Faith-filled prayer is prayer that forgives. Let me challenge you, by the way, in this area of faith-filled prayer, in your walk, wherever you are in your prayer life, challenge yourself to go to the next level. What does that look like for you? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe for some of you, that looks like I need to spend more time alone with God. I need to honestly get with God and be honest before him. I need to get down on my knees and I need to literally confess my sins every day and my fears and my anxiety and my anger and my shame. I just need to be genuine. I need to get alone. I'm not sure what it might look like with you, but let me challenge you. Get to the next level. He wants you to. Counterfeit fruit. We all struggle with it at times. We all put on the appearance of fruit when we, we really got nothing. We all try to produce wax fruit. And though you and I struggle at times with counterfeit fruit, there's one whose fruit was always genuine, always faith-filled, always pure. And every moment of his life was marked with perfect obedience. Each step that he took was a step of trust in his father in the plan of salvation that had been laid out before the foundation of the world. His genuine fruit was demonstrated for you by willingly laying down his life for you. His life of genuine fruit is what covers our counterfeit fruit and makes us acceptable to the father. So church, don't look to your own efforts. Trust in the genuine fruit of your Savior. The work, by the way, the work is already done. Jesus says in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I told you earlier, there were several ways, several ways you can spot counterfeit currency. But do you know that the true experts the true experts who spot counterfeit money, they don't study the methods of the counterfeiters. They don't focus on the counterfeit bills, try to figure out what they look like and how they feel and how they're different. No, they focus on the genuine bills. Experts in spotting counterfeit money study the genuine thing to such a degree, such a degree that they can't help but notice when there's a fake. My friends, God knows those who are truly his. No person practicing counterfeit fruit will ever fool God. He will spot a counterfeit right away. So don't think you can fool Almighty God with your counterfeit fruit. Instead, turn to him in genuine, faith-filled prayer, trusting in his son's righteous works to cover you. That will produce a life of genuine fruit. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the work that you did on the cross. Thank you that the work you did was real. It was genuine. Thank you that we can access that simply by praying. 
Thank you that we don't have to rely on our works to produce anything to please you. We can't please you. Thank you that you've already done the work. Lord, help us to constantly come to you on bended knee, asking and receiving the help that we need to do what it is that you've called us to do, the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. Jesus, strengthen us. Remind us daily of our need of you and produce in us real, genuine fruit that is motivated by love for you and love for one another. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.